You can be seated. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're in the midst of a series called Can I Ask That? That we're going to be talking through another one of your questions today. One of the questions that you submitted to us. And we're excited about that. Excited about the opportunity to, to kind of share with you, I am at least, about one of these questions. And it's one that's been a controversial question for a couple of hundred three or four hundred years, all right? And so we're going to solve it today. Does that sound good? We're not going to solve it today, but we're going to talk about it today, all right? We're going to talk about what that looks like, what what the answer could be, where we could go and all that. And so I'm excited to be with you today to talk about that. Let me give you a, a heads up on a couple of things. Jeff's already mentioned this, but I just want to, we're going to keep this before you as we keep going to going through this process. At the end of the service today is our day of extravagant giving. We've already had um, first service give today, and we don't know the results of that, but first service is already given. We've already had online giving coming in, and that's that's awesome. We have We have more online giving this year than we've ever had before, which is awesome. This is also the first year we've ever had online giving, so that's that's good, right? And so we've got that kind of coming in, and we'll talk about it a little bit more towards the end. But this is something we went to two or three years ago. Um, we we do it at Christmas time for international missions and local mission projects that are outside the church, and then right before summer we do this day um, to give money towards the mission projects that we're doing. Um, so we're we're doing mission projects to Denver, Colorado. We're helping um, Chris Phillips and Stapleton area as they are launching Journey Point Church um, in an area of Denver that is really booming and developing and lots of people moving in. And by all the statistics, a large majority, 75, 85, 90 percent of those people will not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so um, we are helping him out. We're going on a trip out there uh, this summer to help them do sports camps. We have a, a group of four going to Porto Segura, Brazil. Um, two of those guys, Bob and Randy, will be doing um, construction. They'll be building some sort of facility with concrete blocks and concrete they're mixing on the ground. So that'll be really hard work. They'll be doing that. And then uh, Casey and Carrie uh, are also going and they'll be working in the social uh, ministries, um, giving kids uh, toothbrushes and talking about dentistry and how to keep their teeth clean, but also sharing the gospel in that, giving shoes to kids that have never had a pair of shoes, giving glasses to adults that just need help or being able to read a little bit, presenting the gospel in every way. So those are our mission trips for the summer. And then we have two trips that our, our students are taking. First of all, our youth, our middle school and high school students leave a week from tomorrow for Camp Generate. And they're, I know they're excited about that. They leave. They always go early or the last couple of years have gone early. And then our Centric Kid kids will be going in July to Shaco Springs. And so it's a summer full of stuff that we have. And so today we're going to take our offering and a, all of that offering goes to, to help in those areas, to help with those trips, to help people that couldn't um, pay to go and to help um, to pay for some of the ministry costs that are involved in that. Second thing I want to remind you of is next Sunday. Next Sunday is a Memorial Day weekend and we are doing a different schedule. We will have one worship service at 10 o'clock next Sunday. Nothing else will be happening on Sunday of Memorial Day weekend. We're going to have a combined worship service at 10 a.m. So make sure you're here. I know as a church family, we always look forward to those times um, when we get to be here and be a part of that and be part of, of worshiping together. Ephesians chapter 1. Today we're going to talk about a controversy that links itself back to the Protestant Reformation and the people that came out of that. Um, the Protestant Reformation started really 500 years ago, but these kind of debates were going on 450, 400 years ago and have continued on until today. And it centers... 
in the, in the realm when you begin to talk about this, two names get thrown out all the time about this particular controversy. And the first one is this guy right here. Anybody know who that is? That's John Calvin, alright? John Calvin. And so John Calvin was a French theologian that lived in the 1500s and developed, um, Developed this system of belief and theology. Now, now some of what is today called Calvinism, after John Calvin, was not really necessarily taught by him, but kind of developed by his followers. But he is the one that has given his name to a system of religious belief. In fact, there are several denominations that consider John Calvin to be their chief expositor, the guy that they trust what he has determined on Scripture most. And so um, he wrote a huge volumes of books. It's called the Institutes of Christian Religion, where he lays out kind of a systematic theology. And in that, he gives kind of an understanding of salvation. Now, I want to go ahead and warn you today, all right? We're going to wade deep a little bit today, all right? So you just got to be prepared for that. Some of you may not have come with your thinking hats on. I don't know if you can find them and put them on, but we're going to wade deep for a little bit. And then we're going to come at the end to a place we kind of get some consensus and move forward on what that looks like. But John Calvin developed this system of belief that's been kind of consolidated into an understanding of five main understandings of salvation. And they go by the same letters as the letters of TULIP. All right. And so those five things are the total depravity of man, the unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Now, for some of you in this room, that's the first time you've ever heard it. And you're really not upset that you've never heard it before. For some of you in this room, this is like life. You're like the pastor is talking about the graces, the five. All right. And so we're that's been taught for years through different places. There was a guy that came along that wanted to defend Calvin against people that were attacking him because it wasn't without controversy. And this is the guy that came along and wanted to defend Calvin. Anybody know who that is? There you go. Good job. All right. Jacob Arminius. And he began to want to defend Calvin. And as he began to defend Calvin, he discovered he didn't agree with Calvin. And it's kind of hard to defend who you do not agree with. He particularly had an issue with the unconditional election, the limited atonement, and the irresistible grace. Why do you have a problem with that? Well, unconditional election says that God chooses who will be saved, and that God chooses not based on anything other than that He chooses His will, what He desires, and He chooses some to be saved and others to not be saved. He had a problem with limited atonement, which says that the blood of Jesus on the cross just covers the sins of those that are saved in the conditional and the unconditional election. And he had a problem with irresistible grace that said, if God presented grace to you, you could not resist it. And so these two guys have been having a debate through their followers for the last 400 years. And some of you are completely unaware of the debate. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Some of you are aware and don't care. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Some of you are aware and care very deeply. And you're like, this is again, lifeblood. The pastor is finally talking about this. So here's what I want to do today. I want to solve the 400 year debate. Tied up in a knot and nobody will ever have a debate about it again. All right. Can I get an amen, David? That good with you? Put it on YouTube. We'll be done. All right. 
here's what I want to do. I want to look at both sides, not necessarily of these two guys, but I want to look at the question of salvation, how much it is God saving, how much of it is us responding, and is there truth on either side of this that we can push forward with. And I want to look at one of the passages that people use all the time to talk about this, and it's Ephesians chapter 1. Now, before you get there, let me just say to you that you have to understand what Ephesians is before we can read it and talk about it. And what you have to understand is Ephesians is one of the most concise books ever written that gives a full description of what the Christian life looks like, is, comes from, and behaves. And so the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are this tight theology that Paul writes to this group of believers in Ephesus where he tells them who God is, what God has done, how salvation has come about. And then chapters four through six are a practical God, one of the most practical gods to living in the entire Bible, where he talks about how we respond to life based on our walk with Jesus, marriage and forgiveness and conflict management and family and workplace and relationships. And sometimes when people read Ephesians, like we read Ephesians, we think, man, that's a marvelous theology. That's marvelous application. And we read it almost as a student studying a textbook in school. But for the first readers of Ephesians, they would have read it as a survival guide in a place that was particularly hostile to their faith. Ephesus was an impressive and intimidating city. It was at the intersection of Europe and Asia, so it was a major trade route. It was cosmopolitan and multicultural and diverse. The religious atmosphere where the atmosphere there was like a buffet. There were 50 different temples in their city. In fact, the largest temple to the Artemis was there in Ephesus. It's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Immorality was just a part of life. It was a part of religion. In a lot of those 50 different temples, the way that you worshipped God was through temple prostitution. You paid to have sex with a temple prostitute to worship God. And in the midst of that, you have these Christians trying to live a life that is completely countercultural to the environment in which they live. And so when they're reading the book of Ephesians, they're not looking like, can we have some theological debate here about what's happening in Ephesians chapter 1? They're like, did we pick the right thing? Are we going to survive? Is this worth it? Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ to a group of people that had everything taken away from them for their following of Jesus. He says, blessed are you because you have everything in the heavens with Christ. You may not have earthly stuff. You may have had your job taken away. Your family may have abandoned you for following Jesus, but you are being rewarded in the heavenly places. Verse four, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. The word adopted there is chosen specifically. It meant a relationship that could not be broken. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, in Christ, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we also have received inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of the will. So that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I just want you to know that passage, those verses are some of the most densely worded and theological words in the entire Bible. And in the midst of that, a word is used repeatedly again and again and again. The word predestined. Chosen. And when you read it, it raises all kinds of questions. So if we're predestined, if we're chosen, if he did it before the foundation of the world, does that mean he chose some people and not chose other people? What about our free will? What about our ability to choose? What about our decision making? That is the crux of the question. Here's what I want to tell you as we get started into this discussion. One of the ground rules of the Bible you have to understand is this. There are some things about God that we will never fully understand. Now, y'all don't amen a lot, but that's a great place to amen, all right? There are some things about God that we will never fully understand. In fact, there's a verse that helps me when I think about this. This is Deuteronomy 29. It says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of the law. And so he talks about this revealed law and this secret stuff. And the idea is that our responsibility, and Moses, the writer of Deuteronomy, would say this, is to believe and obey what is revealed and not to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out all that's hidden. And that really aggravates some theologians who want to figure it all out. But should it surprise you that a holy, perfect God has some things about him that we cannot understand? I've been pastoring now for almost 17 years. And I remember vividly, now I've shared this story before, but I remember vividly the first um, the first semester, if you will, the first fall that I was a pastor in Ripley, Tennessee. Now, I, I, sometimes I laugh at what happened in Ripley because I was 17 years ago. I was pastoring as 25 year old in a county seat, 150 year old church, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. All right. Now, some of you think you still don't have a clue what you're doing, but imagine 17 years ago. All right. I have a clue what I was doing and I I got in there and I wanted to impress them. I wanted to show them, man, let me show you who I am and let me let me me show you my knowledge and all that. And for some reason, I thought it'd be wise to do my first major Sunday night Bible study on the end times. The second coming of Jesus. And part of that was because my 
um, mentor and professor and the guy that was president of my university, David Dockery, had just, Dr. Dockery had written a study on it. So I pulled it out like, man, I'm going to show him. I'm going to teach him. And so I did. And I taught him. And kind of along the same line, I would say to him every week, man, these are the things we know. These are the things that the Bible says. This is what we know for certain. The rest of this is a little bit of speculation because we don't know. These are secret things. We won't know exactly what's happened. And so we know Jesus is coming back. We know he's going to take us to be with him and for followers of Jesus. We know there's going to be a judgment. But how and when and what that looks like is not exactly revealed to us. And so every week they would ask me questions and I would say things like, I don't I don't know that the Bible gives us a clear answer on that. After about four weeks, um, I got the stomach bug like after church on a Sunday and couldn't teach that night. So my associate pastor, who was also the music minister, came in and said, listen, he, he was doing choir at the time. He said, he said, I'm here for just a few minutes, but I wanted to get y'all started on discussion. And I thought, because pastor's been in here leading you, I thought we'd start. Just tell us what you've learned so far in this study. And there was a lady who was not the youngest lady in the room. She was a little bit older in her 70s or 80s, and she raised her hand. This is the, related to me later. And the associate pastor said she raised her hand and she said, we have discovered that our pastor don't know very much about the end times. That's what we've discovered. <laughs> and the truth is, she's right. We don't. This issue, election and free will, that we're going to talk about today, is like trying to explain quantum physics to a four-year-old. Or someone trying to explain quantum physics to you. And imagine what is greater, the gap between a four-year-old and you or between your knowledge and God's. So we approach something like this, we realize we are delving into realities that our minds can barely grasp. For instance, there's this point in the scripture when it says in this passage we just read in Ephesians chapter one, that he knew beforehand who would choose him. It says he looks down the corridors. Some people think that that meant that he just had a knowledge that somebody would choose him. So he was like, oh, Lyle will choose me, so I'll choose him back first. But that's not what the verse says. It says he set his love on us and chose us before we were even a twinkle in our parents' eyes. What is beautiful about verses 13 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1 is it gives us a picture of what salvation looks like in the life of a believer. And what's fascinating about that, it is a long sentence. What I just read you was one sentence. It is 202 words long. And in that 202 word sentence, God is the one taking almost all of the action. That 202-word sentence has 48 pronouns. 30 of them belong to God. There are 24 verbs in that one sentence. God does 20 of the actions in the sentence. We do four. So in that description of salvation that comes in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we see God blesses, God chooses, God predestines, God adopts, God bestows grace, God redeems, God forgives, God lavishes, God makes known, God purposes, God unites together in Christ, God works, God seals. And we listen, receive, believe, and hope. People say, so what part of salvation are we responsible for? Well, the truth is, what Scripture teaches here is the acting of salvation is God. And it says in there that 
what we do in the midst of it is listen, receive, believe, and hope. And some of you right now are like, man, we, man, that's deep. But the truth is, we're like a 10-year-old boy when we begin to even talk about this. Like a 10-year-old boy that walks out into the ocean and he gets just a few feet out in the ocean and he can't touch the bottom. And he goes, man, it's deep out here. And it's in reality like six or seven feet deep. He just can't touch the bottom. And when you get out into the ocean, it is miles deep. That is the comparison of what even this discussion is like to the comparison of who God is and what we can understand about him. He is miles deep. And so when we think about Ephesians chapter 1, we think about the issue of election and free will. Here is what I want to do. I just want to take with this and thinking about the entirety of Scripture, and I want to come to two points that we absolutely know that Scripture teaches. Because I'm not really concerned about a theological system as much as I am about what Scripture teaches as it talks about in Deuteronomy and what we do with that. And when we look at that, when we think about that, there are two things that I know Scripture teaches. And the first is this. God is completely sovereign. Completely sovereign. Now, when you see the word sovereign, what does that mean? In control. What's in that word that tells us what it means? Reign. When you hear the word reign, what do you think? King. Anybody watch the royal wedding yesterday? We've got some down here. Anybody have a party to watch the royal wedding yesterday? We want to pray for y'all. All right, let me see. Uh, we watched it at our house. We watched it. We, we got in. I got, I, I, honestly, I did not wake up till mid-sermon. All right, I was mid-sermon there when I woke up. Some of you said that's me every week. That's all right, all right? So mid-sermon, I woke up, all right? We got in on that, watched it. And here's the thing. When people think about the king and queen of England, they think about reigning. But the truth is today, the king and queen of England, or the queen of England, and who might be king eventually, like they have, they have some status and some authority, but they're not making the decisions for the country anymore. Parliament's making the decision. Prime Minister's making the decision. And so it's not really that they're a figurehead, but they, they're not true kings, queens. True kings, true queens reign. What they say goes. What they do happens. What they want becomes. And when we say God is completely sovereign, it means he is in complete control of all things. Just listen how scripture describes him. He is before all things and all things are held together through him. He was there before the mountains were born. He brought forth the earth. He is the Alpha and Omega. He alone is immortal because he is the only one that existed before time. He created all things, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. He upholds all things, sustaining everything, holding it together by his word. He is above all things so that all people everywhere may know him. He knows all things. He isn't a limited God. God knows everything completely before it happens. He can do all things. Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing, not anything is impossible with him. He accomplishes all things. He orchestrates and determines what he's going to do in your life and my life and the president's life and war-torn country's life with rebellious rulers' lives everywhere. And whatever he plans in the world, in the universe, he does. He rules over all things. That's what sovereignty is. All strength and power are in his hands. He is in control of all things. Whenever the economy dips or shootings happen, whenever earthly kings rage out of control, God is still in control. When Satan wants to mess with your life, he has to ask God's permission first because he's in control. 
A.W. Tozer says, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. Were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. Were God lacking in one infinitesimal modicum of power, that lack would end his reign and then do all of his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else and God would be a limited ruler and not sovereign. Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be free, which means that he is free to do whatever he wills, to do anywhere at any time, to carry out his eternal purpose and every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he is not sovereign. And the Bible makes the repeated bold claim that he knows all, is all powerful and is completely free. He is sovereign. One theologian says, if there's one single molecule in the universe running around without the control of God, there is no guarantee that any promise of God will come true. But if he has it under his control, everything he promises will happen. What he wants to do, he does. He's completely free to act. Can I tell you this? His acting is not determined about what we think ought to happen. Think about how arrogant that is, right? Well, God, we really think that you should rethink that whole thing. The one who has complete knowledge, rethink is what we tell him. Recalculate. He requires permission from no one because he needs nothing from anyone. Knows all things, is everywhere present, and holds all power. No one exists who could possibly challenge his plans. Nothing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases, always, everywhere, forever. Or as Job put it, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now that flies in the face of a me-centered group of people that live in the United States of America where everything in our lives revolves around us. But life doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around God. It's good to have Alan in here. Man. (laughs) Missing some amens. Thank you. That's his wife. But unless we understand that at the center of our universe is God, we miss out on the most important aspects of life. There is a lot at stake here. Now, I want you to remember we're talking about the Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, he tells him God's the one that's doing this. God's going to take care of us. God's in control of this. God's got you. And for a group of people that are persecuted or hurting or unsure, he is telling them you can be confident in God. You can be assured in God. You can have hope in God. You can have strength in God. He will take care of you no matter what. When the world around you is raging, you need a a sovereign God and praise be to God. He is. The Bible teaches he is sovereign. Second thing the Bible teaches. You have real choices. You have real choices. God in his infinite sovereign wisdom has allowed you and I to make decisions in our lives that have real consequences, that have real results, and they are real choices. 
In the garden, God establishes Adam and Eve. He takes the dust of the ground. He builds Adam. He breathes life into Adam. He brings all the animals before Adam. And Adam names all the animals. And when they get all the animals in front of Adam and Adam names all the animals, at the end of the day, Adam says, I still feel alone. So God puts Adam to sleep. He pulls a rib out of Adam. He creates Eve. He shows Eve to Adam. And Adam goes, whoa, man. And he names her that. Then... Y'all didn't know that was in there, did you? All right. Maybe it's not. So you have Adam and Eve, man and woman. He puts them in the garden. He says, this is yours to enjoy. You can have anything you want in a perfect garden of paradise with animals around you and a beautiful. If you've ever been, think of the most beautiful place you've ever been in your life. And it is not compared to what they were standing in. And as he looked around, he said, you can have whatever you want to accept. There's one thing. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Everything else is yours. And soon, very soon after he tells them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's my thing. If that wasn't a real choice that they could have chosen to eat or not to eat, then God is a puppet master and we are just in a game where he is controlling everything and decisions do not matter. But we see in the scripture, they decided to turn their back on God as each and every one of us has since that day, they turned their back on God. And as they did, the consequences of their action are being felt today by us. It was a real Choice. Moses goes up on the mountain, brings down the law of God, and he says, this is the law of God. And in the law of God, it says, if you obey my commands, then what you discover is, I will bless you, I will be your God, I will go with you. If you don't, punishment will come. It was a real choice. Joshua stands up in front of the people as they're getting ready. They're in the promised land and he says to them, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it will be God or whether it will be the gods of this land. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord our God. And we see that it was a real choice because when you turn the pages to the book of Judges, just a few pages over, you find out that the people of God chose not to follow God. And they went their own way. Yes, Pastor, that's Old Testament. Old Testament. We didn't talk about the Ninevites who God gave a real opportunity to for salvation and they turned and turned back to God, even a God they had never known. We didn't talk about the sailors on the boat that turned to God. We didn't talk about those kind of moments. But you say that's Old Testament. You get to the New Testament. Okay, let's talk about the New Testament. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the most famous Bible verse in all of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that the one he picks out. Is that what it says? That whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. And in Acts chapter 2, he stands up in front of a group of people that are there for Pentecost. And Peter says to him, repent and be baptized. You have a real choice. So here's the truth. God is absolutely, completely sovereign. What he wills happens. He is in absolute control of all things. We have real choices. The most brilliant man I met at Southwestern Seminary when I was in seminary, when I was in um, getting my master's degree in theology, was a professor that we called Triple E. His name was E. Earl Ellis. 
And Eero Ellis taught Pauline theology. That was his big class by the time I got there. There were some great professors I had at Southwestern. I mean, Dr. Roy Fish was unbelievable in evangelism. Had Dr. Hempill, who taught 1 Corinthians, was a great teacher. But Dr. E. Earl Ellis, triple E, was brilliant. There were times that I would sit in his classroom and he would just stand at the podium quoting systematic theologies on Paul without looking at a note. Like someone would ask him an off-the-wall question, he'd begin to quote passages of places that I didn't even know existed. And someone asked him one day, because when it would have been heard. Now, now, in today in Southern Baptist life, this Calvinism, Arminianism, Calvinism, non-Calvinism question, New Reformed, all that, it's a, it's a big debate, huge debate. When I was in seminary, it wasn't a big debate. There wasn't much debate about it. But the rumors were that he was more sympathetic to one side than the rest of Southwestern Seminary. And so someone asked him one day, because in seminary you have guys that ask questions not to get answers, but to put the teacher on the spot or to prove how much they know. And someone said, well, where do you come down on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? And E. Earl Ellis, who was the most brilliant man I had met at that school, looked at us and said, I don't have a clue. He said, here's why I envision it as. He said, I envision it as train tracks running into the horizon. And on one side, you've got the sovereignty of God. And on one side, you've got the free will of man. He said, and I don't have a clue where, but somewhere down the track that we cannot see right now because of our limited knowledge and God hasn't revealed it, those two tracks merge and come together and form how it all works together. He said, but that is in the mind of God and I am not able to understand it. And this is why it's important for us to say sometimes, we don't have all the answers. Now you say, it felt like you've said that every week of this series in some ways. Well, they wouldn't get here if they weren't real questions. But there are some implications that we must understand regardless of where we come down on our theological positions with all of that. And regardless of where you come down on your theological understandings of that, there are two things that sometimes get put away in the midst of all of these discussions because of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man that cannot be put away because we must go with what the Bible teaches. As Deuteronomy says, what the Bible says and we understand, we do. And the two things that we must understand are this. First of all, prayer changes things. Because sometimes when you talk about the sovereignty of God, if you're not careful, you will say that our prayers really don't make a difference because God has already determined what's going to happen completely and our prayers have no effect. But that is not what Scripture teaches. Sometimes people will even sound real theological and they'll say something like, you know what, prayer doesn't change situations, it changes me. In fact... One of my heroes, a guy that I probably quote more than any other person, is C.S. Lewis. And unfortunately, on this case, I think he is wrong. In his work, Shadowlands, Lewis describes his marriage to Joy Davidman. And he says that on his wedding night, he bows down beside the bed to pray. And she says, why are you praying? She said, do you really believe prayer changes things? And he said, it doesn't change things, it changes me. And I hope you understand how difficult it is for me to criticize C.S. Lewis. Some of you feel like you've read everything he's ever written because I've quoted it all at some point. But he said that and he was wrong. 
And the reason I say that he's wrong is because of passages like Luke 18, where Jesus tells a parable about a woman. And he says, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to themselves, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I'll give her justice. This is also be called the parable of the four-year-old, all right? So that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent asking. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will greatly, he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In this story, the woman asked again and again and again and again. And if it was God's will, she was just agreeing with God's will, he would have just said yes the first time, I think. And I don't know how it all works together, but this passage shows you that some outcomes in life are dependent on our prayers. And not just any prayer, but persistent, bold prayer. Did you catch that? He said it's because of her persistence. One of the original uh, interpretations of that was impudence. She would not give up. One of my favorite scenes of the Old Testament is when they're in a battle and Moses' hands are raised. As long as his hands are raised, they win. And when his hands drop, they begin to lose. So if you know the story, God's come to hold his arms up. It's a beautiful picture of them winning. Some pastor I read this week, can you imagine what would happen if Moses just decided to start doing jumping jacks like right there? Some of you will get that at lunch. Okay, all right. But the point was that as long as Moses' arms were up, they won. It was dependent in some way on him and his trust in God. John Wesley once said, God does nothing on earth except an answer to prayer. And that may be an overstatement because the word nothing is bold. But I know that God works when we pray. And I don't know how it all works together. I mean, Isaiah 46.10 says God knows the end from the beginning. It's not like he's surprised by our prayers, like he didn't know we were going to pray them. There's no spoilers for God. He knows it all. Psalm says that before we form a word in our heart, he knows it all together. Philippians 2 tells us that God himself works in us both to will and to do the good pleasure. That somehow when we're asking God for something, it is God that is pushing us to ask. And how that all works together, I'm not totally sure. But what I do know is that God has sovereignly chosen in the history of man to work through our prayer. And it is foolish rebellion and pride that sits around and speculates on questions about the sovereignty of God without the simple obedience to do what he asks us to do. There was a theologian of a long time ago that once said, does God know the day you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then that would be the day that God has appointed you for die. And my paraphrasing here, his answer is quit asking stupid questions and eat. Eating is the way God has allowed us to be alive. Eat. Don't test God. Prayer is the preordained way that God gets his work done on earth. And here's the second reason that it's important to do what God asks, regardless of where you come down on this issue. And the second issue is this. We have an urgent task. Romans 10 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know what the word everyone means? Everyone. 
And they say, the how then? Can you call on the name that they haven't believed in? How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not obey the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Here's the truth. Wherever you come down on this question, the scriptures are clear that we must go with everything we have to take the gospel of Jesus Christ next door and to the nations. In the Bible, the gospel is never communicated outside of a human instrument doing the communication of the gospel. And from all the statistics I can tell you, right now, at most, one-third of the people on earth claim to be Christians. That means that there are around 5 billion lost people on the planet, and half of those, or 2.5 billion, have little or no access to the gospel. And each one of those people, those 2.5 billion people, are just like us, hurt, lonely, Fearful and are destined to spend an eternity in hell separated from God because scripture makes it clear that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no plan B. You're plan A and there's no plan B. And so we cannot give up going, praying, sending. You can deny that it's happening, but that won't change the situation. You can ignore it and live with your life, or you can do what is script, Scripture suggests is to embrace it fully and say, Here am I, Lord, send me. And we can't do everything. As a church, we can't do everything. As an individual, you can't do everything. But we can do what God has called us to do. And in the sovereign will of God, we trust that when we do what God has called us to do, other people will do what God has called them to do. In the sovereign plan of God, His plan will be accomplished and people will be saved. And if the driving importance of your life isn't the glory and the magnitude of God, then you're missing out. Sometimes people ask me, well, why do y'all do this extravagant giving thing? Why, why, do you, why do you support kids going to camp? Why do you let the whole church pay for some people to go on a mission trip? Well, here's the first thing that I would tell you is because we're a church. Do you know what a church means? It means we're a community of believers that are gathered together to accomplish the purpose of God. And so when one of us is going to Denver, you know how many of us are going to Denver? All of us. When four of us are going to Brazil, the rest of us are there with them. That's what a church is. What about kids going to camp? Here's what I know about kids going to camp. I know that statistics tell me that if children do not choose to follow Jesus Christ by their 18th birthday, what we discover is rapidly the percentage of them accepting Christ deteriorates as they grow older. And I want to give every child that comes under the influence of our friends and our people that are here at this church the opportunity to spend a time deciding, having that choice of whether or not they're going to follow Jesus Christ with their life. And so I want to put them in an environment where they hear the gospel clearly presented. And so I have no problem asking you as a church to help support kids going to camp. There are some kids that wouldn't go to camp without our help, the church's help. That's why I love these days. I love the day in December when we do it because we give it outside this church. But I love the day here because I know that somebody in this room is going to give today a part of an offering that's going to help a child go to generate in a week. And that child's life is going to be forever changed. And I know that somebody in this room today is going to give some amount of money. 
in a part of an offering that's going to go to help send some people to Denver, Colorado, the Stapleton area where Chris Phillips is building a church from scratch. And somebody is going to find out about Jesus Christ in a place where 90 to 95 percent of the people there do not know Jesus. They're going to discover Jesus and their life is going to be forever changed. I got an email from Chris about three weeks ago. That the assistant to the teacher at the school where they're going to be meeting accepted Jesus Christ as her savior. The first convert of a church that hasn't even started. Somebody's going to give part of an offering today that's going to go to support four people going to Porto Segura, Brazil. And one of those people, Casey or Carrie or Bob or Randy, are going to work all week with people are going to sit down and put shoes on a kid's feet, are going to help a kid learn to brush their teeth in a funny way. And in the midst of that, they're going to share the gospel. And a family's life is going to be forever changed. What else is worth giving towards than that? We're going to take a group of 40 to 50 kids to Shaco Springs. And they are going to be crazy for a week. And some of you that aren't there will be glad you are not there. Get an amen in the house of the Lord. And lives are going to be changed forever. You know what I think is interesting about that passage? How can they hear without somebody coming? How can someone come unless they're sent? You realize the catalyst that leads to the hearing is the sending. Where does it back up to? How can they go unless they're sent? Without that, there's no end result. And what happens with Dave extravagant giving is you get to be part of the sending. We definitely want you praying. We want you praying all the time because we believe prayer changes things. But we also want you giving because we believe. We believe in the power of the church gathering together to support the mission of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. So here's the question. Lyle, do you believe that God is completely sovereign and determines all things? Yes. Do you believe that we have real choices that we make? Yes. How do you make that work together? I don't have a clue. But I'm going to keep praying. And I'm going to keep sharing Jesus. Because that's what the Bible tells me to do. Let's pray together.